Tricky stuff, microphones. <laughs> okay, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through to chapter 11, verse 13. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I've got no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Over the past few years, I've been reading on and off different biographies of a man called George Muller. It started about three years ago when I was on holiday and we were reading uh, 10 men who changed the world, 10 boys who changed the world. And George Muller really caught my attention as I was reading uh, six pages about his life and ministry to my kids. So I thought, right, I'm going to get into this guy. So I've been reading different biographies about him for about three years on and off. He's a remarkable man. He lived at the turn of the 19th century in Bristol. And throughout his life, he set up orphanages for people who were homeless, who didn't have mums, who didn't have dads, who wanted them. Throughout his life, he actually cared and took under his wing and into his homes 10,000 boys and girls in different homes around Bristol. 
What is truly remarkable about George Muller, what he's known for, is that he was a man of prayer. You think, where on earth, in the times of uh, Dickens, this kind of Dickensian workhouse, that's what you used to have in your eye when kids were sent up uh, chimneys and treated very, very badly. Where on earth would George Muller, who was not a wealthy man, where would he get the resources to care for up to 10,000 kids throughout his life? He didn't go to banks, he didn't go out with a begging bowl. What George Muller did every single day of his life was he prayed. No one knew what he prayed for until the end of the year when his journal, in which he recorded every single prayer request, until it was opened up every year, until there was an accounting of the money that he had received through donation. Every year, George Muller was a man of prayer for 60 years. He prayed, according to his journals, 50,000 individual requests to God, 30,000 of which were answered directly. Some were answered within the hour, some were answered within the day. 30,000 direct answers to prayer God gave this man so that he had enough money to buy houses, he had enough resources to care for children, and that means enough food, enough clothing, enough people. Sometimes things got really close to the wire and yet God provided miraculously because George Muller was a man of prayer. If God answered 30,000 specific requests, by the way, that's 500 definite answers to prayer every year. That means it's more than one per day. George Muller could look into his journal and tick off and think God is a man, God is a person rather, who answers prayer. God answers prayer. So George Muller is a man of prayer. Now, I tell you that story and I encourage you to get into uh, his life. It really is a great challenge to me. Because through the, the Gospel of Luke, we've been looking at the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. So chapters 1 to 9, that looks at Jesus' early life and ministry. Chapters 18 through 25 at the end, um, 24 rather, that's looking at the last week of Jesus' life. But right in the middle of Luke's Gospel, from about chapter 9 and a half through to chapter 18, there's this huge section of teaching. Now why would Jesus spend so long doing that? Why is there this huge section recorded in Luke's Gospel about the teaching and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me tell you why. Because Jesus wants to inform us, to tell us, to describe to us, to show us what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? What does it look like? What is a person, a man, a woman, a boy or girl? How do they behave? What do they think about? What do they prioritize? What do they do in response to the grace and mercy of Jesus? And chapters 9 and a half through to chapters 18 describe what that person looks like. Look uh, at the end of chapter 10. You've got this lovely little story of Martha and Mary. And then straight away, chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus starts talking about prayer. Now, what's the connection? Is there one? That's why we read them together, because I do think they're together. Jesus has just rebuked Martha. He's encouraged Mary because Mary did the one necessary thing, which was to sit at the Lord Jesus' feet, to live a devoted life, but also pursuing the kingdom of God. It's not a big division between you're either a person of prayer and devotion or you're someone who works. A Christian disciple is someone who's committed to the kingdom work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but who also lives habitually in their center, devoted to God. Now, what does that look like? What is this one thing that uh, Mary has prioritized above Martha that she gets commended for? Where does that begin? 
What does that life look like? Chapter 11, verse 1. Where it begins is someone who has a vibrant, a real, a natural prayer life. That's where it begins. That's what a follower, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ prioritizes. They're people of prayer. You may not be a George Muller or a Mrs. Muller, but you're someone who prays to God. You're someone who talks to God naturally and habitually and regularly. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord Jesus didn't just teach on prayer, he lived on prayer. It was his fuel. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. Jesus was always praying. If you look through the Gospels, it doesn't matter which one, Jesus was always praying. He prayed probably for a couple of hours at the start of every single day. Because knowing God is not being in touch with a force field. Right? Star Wars has done us a great disservice if you think knowing God is something like knowing the force. Knowing God is not just an intellectual debate. It's not an emotion that you feel sometimes and sometimes you don't. Knowing God is a personal, intimate relationship. And that's why it begins with prayer. That's what a disciple, that's what a follower of Jesus does and looks like. It's not an idea to contemplate. God is a person we relate to. And that relationship begins with prayer. And it begins... When the disciples come, verse 1, saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. We can see that you are connected to God. We see that you know God personally. We see that you know God intimately. Teach us how to do that. Jesus says, okay, here's the key. Verse 2, the first thing you need to learn about the praying life, you need to remember your status. You need to remember your status before God. That's my first point. Now look, over the years, and I'm glad Joe's not in here because this is partially true, but it's an illustration, so it must be true. Over the years, as a parent, as a dad, when my kids have come to the wrong side of the bed in the middle of the night, which is my side of the bed, when they come and say, my water cup is empty, I need some more water, that's happened probably three times. It's happened millions of times the other side of the bed, so good job that Joe's out. But probably at least three times. At least three times it's happened to me when my child and one of the children have come in and said, I've run out of water, it's 2 a.m., please can you get me some more water? Please can you refresh my sippy cup, as they used to say when they were taught American for three years. Now, how does a father respond? How I should respond is, of course I can, dear, I'll get it for you. And up I get. Because a child can come knowing their status. If one of you guys rang me up at 2 a.m., unless it was an absolute emergency, I may not respond in the same way that I speak tenderly to my children at any hour of the day or night. Now, just imagine if it was not my child who came in and said, hey, can I get some water? Imagine it was Joe who rolled over and said, my sippy cup is out of water. Please, can you get me some more? Now, I don't think I'll be as polite. I'll probably say, get it yourself. <laughs> but a child, a child can come and because they are weak, because they are vulnerable, because they are little, when they do wake me from my spiritually deep, death-like slumber, if they can, get over the snores and get into my ear. Peter, stop laughing. What happens is, because of who they are, because of their status, they and they alone have a right to ask me to do that. My wife, Jo, she can ask me, I may, if it's a really good day, say, of course, dear, and I jump out like a Bambi and go and get her some water. But all, more often than not, I'd say, on your bike, you should know better. <laughs> Jesus says this, when you pray, verse 2, this is how you pray. You need to remember 
the first thing when you pray, you need to remember your status. You need to remember that God is your Father. Lord, teach us to pray. And he said to them, verse 2, when you pray, say, Father. Say, Father. I remember watching the West Wing. I'm sure it's the same. In the West Wing, it must be true. I'm sure it's the same for the Prime Minister of the UK. Everyone, every minute of the Prime Minister or the President's life is, is documented in two-minute gaps of time. You can only get to see the President or the Prime Minister if you are someone of importance, someone who's significant, someone who's just won a medal and they want to get some reflected glory, someone who's done a great job teaching or in the medical profession, so you're going to be commended, someone who's in charge of a political party or a country. If you are someone of importance, someone of significance, someone who's a somebody, then you can get time with an important person like the Prime Minister or the President of America. But if you're a child, you never need an appointment. If you're a child, it's based on your status, not on what you've done. If you're a child, it doesn't matter whether you're late or early, whether it's inconvenient or not. You don't need an appointment. You can always come to your father. And Jesus says, do you want to know what Mary had right? Mary came and sat at my feet and listened to my voice. She embodied what the discipleship's life is like. She is a follower of Jesus Christ. She got it right at that time when Martha got it slightly wrong. And let me tell you how you pray to know what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus. Remember your status. Remember God's grace. Remember his mercy that's been at work in your life. And because of that, you don't come to God with your prayer voice. You don't come to God only at a specific place or time. You come to God and you pray. You talk to God wherever you are. Whatever you've done. Whoever you are. You don't need an appointment. You need to remember your status. That's the key to prayer. Jesus is not just saying something he knows to be true existentially. He knows this personally. You look through Matthew, you look through Mark. You look all through Luke, all through John. Whenever Jesus prays, he either prays, Father or he says, Holy Father, or he prays, Abba Father. He always prays to God as his Father. And God always responds with one exception. There's only one time when God addresses, or Jesus addresses his Father, and he doesn't respond. And that's the cross. When Jesus addresses his Father, my God, my God. Notice he didn't say Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only once God doesn't respond. Why? Because at that point, Jesus, as it were, just for a time, has lost his family status. He's been cast out from his father. He's been separated. This great division has come in between the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because of my sin and your sin. And because Jesus Christ was cast out at that point, because God the Father turned his back on his Son, whenever we make mistakes, and I do and we do, Whenever we think we would lose our status, we won't, because he did. Whenever we think that we've done something and it's so bad, it's so guilt-inducing, it's so fear-inducing that we think we can't go to God in prayer, we could never speak to him again. We still can, because Jesus Christ, he experienced what we should experience. Jesus Christ, he felt the wrath of his Father so that we don't have to. So when he approached God as his father and he heard nothing from heaven but silence, that means that when 
we do things that are wrong, when we behave the way we shouldn't, when we sin, God won't turn his back on us if we are Christians because he already turned his back on him. He got the punishment he, that we deserve so that his love for us is seen as unconditional, as real, it's made manifest, it's concrete to us by the presence of the Spirit in our own hearts. So this prayer that Jesus is praying and saying, this is how you pray, this is how you know a real intimacy with God. The first thing you need to do is pray to him as your father. Remember your status. Remember that you're adopted in Jesus. And this is not based on your feelings. My children will always be my children. I pity them. But they'll never lose that. They always have their mother's good looks. Praise God, not their father's. Remember your status, friends. When you come to pray, remember who God has made you. And so you're addressing your father. Secondly, verse 2 and following shows us how, if we understand who we are in Jesus Christ, if we understand God's grace, if we understand that we've been chosen, called, adopted, well, that means you see the world through new eyes. You see the world through new eyes. I don't know if you saw it this week. It was in the mail, so again, it must be true. There was a competition for the worst wedding photos that there's ever been. It wasn't at Joel and Margot's wedding, thankfully. I think. There were some absolute horrendous photos. The one that I thought uh, was the worst because it was the best, so to speak, was there was a photographer and all of the photos had her in them. So there she was, there's the happy couple and she photobombed in the back somehow. She took loads of selfies. They were just atrocious wedding photos where the focus was not on the happy couple, but it was on her. So literally she was there in the back and it's like, where's Wally? There she is. And she shouldn't have been anywhere near the photos. The perspective was completely out of whack. It was on her, not on the couple. Jesus says when you pray, remembering your family status, here are two things that you've got to remember as you pray. Verse 2. When you pray to your father, he's your father, but pray submissively. Where do I get that? Verse 2. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Verse 3. Give us this day our daily bread. When it comes to praying, Jesus is saying, this is how you pray to your Father who is in heaven. Your perspective will be just like that wedding photographer who got it all wrong unless you pray in this way. Do not be tempted to go to God, says Jesus, just with a shopping list of all your needs and requests. He is not a heavenly divine butler. He is not a heavenly Coke machine that you just put the prayer coupon in and out comes a can of Coke. You will pray like that unless you pray submissively. He's your Father in heaven. But notice verse 2. The first thing you pray for, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Unless your sight is healed, unless your focus is refocused every single day on the priorities of God and his kingdom, on his character, unless your vision of God is renewed, that you focus on his love, on his mercy, on his purposes, on his glory, on his truth, that you renew your sight of his love through reading the Bible, you'll just be popping into the photos all the time. The focus will be on you, not on him. The order will be reversed and you won't be praying submissively. And Jesus says, one of the signs that you're a disciple is, first of all, your first priority is always for God, for his purposes, for his work, for his kingdom, around his world. Which is why we always want to pray big in Epsom. 
Because God is big. We always want to pray large when we're praying, whether it's in the car, on the train, on the bus, on the way to work, over a mug of tea or coffee at the start, middle or end of the day. You can pray big because our Heavenly Father is big. For His concerns are huge and global. We don't just come to God with our shopping list of our daily bread, what we need. Because left to ourselves, our focus is always out of whack. Think of it this way. One of the reasons we can work so hard is because we can say that God is our saviour, but if we work so hard, really, it could be revealing that functionally we think we can save ourselves. One of the reasons we want to save so hard is because we say we trust, we trust in God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, but actually we're far happier when our bank balance is full. One of the reasons we can be so constrained when people think ill of us or people disapprove of us is we can say that God is our Heavenly Father and that we trust in God every day of our lives, but actually what really matters is people's approval. And what God is saying is this. You will never know how to pray. You'll never know what your daily needs are until you pray submissively. Hallowed be your name. That's my first concern. Second comes my needs. I pray that you will build your church in China. I pray that you will save. I pray that you will grow. I pray that before you come to God saying, Father, I need. Father, I ask for. Father, I request. Our perspective will always be wrong. We'll be just like that photographer who should be focusing on the happy couple. We should be focusing on God, on his purposes, on his glory, on his work. And if we do that, to the degree we do that, everything else will fall into its proper place. And so when you pray, do you pray, Father, I may not be seeing things right. I may not be asking for the right things. I don't know really what I need. I think I know what I need, but I trust you. Help me to center my life, my passions, my energies. Use my resources on your glory, on your kingdom. Help me to do that a bit more this week. Help me to fuel who, my knowledge of you by looking at your word. I find, I don't know about you, when I don't read the Bible, when I don't pray, I feel very distant from God. And I believe that God doesn't love me. And I think that God is far from me. But I want to say again and again, remember your status if you're a Christian and pray submissively. Pray for God's kingdom to grow. Pray that you will be fueled in your love for Jesus by studying his word. That's the first thing. Pray submissively. Look at the second thing. Verses 5 to 8. If you were to pray submissively, the second thing we need to pray for is persistence. We need to pray persistently. There's this little parable in uh, verses 5 to 8 of a friend who's in need of resources that he doesn't have. Verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. That's this word. If the first word is submissiveness, hallowed be your name before daily bread, the second word I want you to remember is boldness. Boldness. Look there in verse 8. Because of his boldness. You're supposed to ask boldly. And then Jesus goes on to say about knocking. Now when you uh, knock on the door, you don't, just, you don't just do it once, do you? You, you knock repeatedly. 
And so there's, because of our status in Jesus Christ, we can approach God, our Heavenly Father, repeatedly, boldly, courageously, persistently, almost, you could say, almost aggressively, because there's a repetitive nature to it. We want to let hold of God and not let go until he answers our prayers. Well, you think that never happens in the Bible. You just pray once and God will answer. Well, it does. Think back to Moses. Moses back in uh, Exodus 33. He's showing God his handwriting. That's what prayer is. Showing God his promises. And he's, he's wrestling with God and, and saying, look, you've got to listen to your own promise, God, as if God has forgotten. Or he says, um, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, you've got to do this. What will people say about you? As if God's kind of got amnesia. He's wrestling with God. He's knocking. He's bold. He's courageous. He's also submissive. But he's approaching God, saying, do this because your word says it will. Do this because of your covenant that you've made. He's wrestling with God. He's knocking and asking persistently. Jesus is saying, pray to God who's your heavenly father. Pray submissively, but pray boldly as well. Because you're a child of the king. And he loves to hear your voice. When um, Ruth read it out, it's a lovely translation here of a word that's not translated very well. It says in verse 8, shameless audacity. Shameless audacity. That's a brilliant translation of a word that's translated often very badly. And there's a tension here that we need to wrestle with just for a moment. Which one is it? Are we to be reverent of God or are we to have a shameless audacity? In Hebrews 12, at the end of Hebrews 12, it says, let us worship the Lord, let us worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And the word for reverence and awe is the word ados, ados. It's a fearful reverence, it's a trembling before a great and powerful God who's a consuming fire. But what's interesting is the same word is used here in Luke 11. And yet here we've got an unados, unados. So in Hebrews 12, you've got reverence and awe, but here you've got unados. Come to God and pray unadosly. Come and pray to God, wonderful translation, with shameless audacity. So there's a contradiction. The Bible is clearly wrong because it says reverence and awe, and yet here it says a boldness, a shameless audacity, and a reverence, you could almost say. Now, how do you put those two together? The only way you can put those two together, and it's not a contradiction, is if you understand that you come to God as a child comes to their father. As a child comes to their father. A child who should respect their parents and yet can come without any appointment because of their status. Can can come bouncing in, like they're bouncing off the walls with E-numbers, but they can come and talk to them. There's a reverence because of who they are, but there's a boldness and a liberty because we are children of the King. So we can pray unadosly, and yet we have also have ados. So Hebrews 12 and Luke 11 are right because of the gospel, because Jesus Christ has adopted us. We're sons of the King. Pray shamelessly. Pray boldly. Pray persistently. Pray reverently. Pray often. Two things I want us to think about. And finally, verses 11 to 13. We can pray reminding ourselves of our status. We can pray 
with this new perspective on the world. We want to pray that God's kingdom to come and we can ask for our every need. But finally, verses 11 to 13, let's focus our thoughts as we come around the table on God's character. Who is God from verses 11 to 13? God is a good, good father from verses 11 to 13. What father among you, if he asks his son, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? If you're a parent here this morning, and this is a timeless challenge, it's always difficult, is it not, as a parent, to discern what a child needs versus what they ask for. It doesn't matter whether your children are little or large and old and flown the, less, less, the nest. It's always hard to discern between a request, I need a PlayStation. No, you don't. I need a new pair of shoes. No, you don't. Perhaps they do. But it's always hard, and it happens tens of times every day, between what a child requests and what they really need. What you know will be helpful to them, what will be unhelpful to them. And that's what this little illustration from the Lord Jesus' lips is pointing at. I'm going to give you the reverse illustration. Imagine a father and son are walking down by the beach, and the son sees a beautifully formed scorpion with its tail just curled up, and he bends down to pick it up, I want a pet, and I want that scorpion, and I want it now. Please, can I have it? And as he goes to reach down, the father grabs his hand and says, no, that's not for you. That's not a good pet. I'll buy you a guinea pig, or something like that. Here's the request. I want a pet, and I want that scorpion. I desire that scorpion. I need that scorpion. And in that instance, the father says, well, you can have a pet, but that's not the one to have. That's too dangerous for you. That's not good for you. And that's what we're seeing here in verses 11 to 13. The character of God who responds to our prayers when we pray to him as our father, but it won't always be yes. Because God can always discern between what we need, what's best for us, versus our shopping list of requests about what we need from our perspective. Remember, please, Christians are people who know when we pray that God will not always give us what we request, but he will always give us what we need because he's a good, good father. It says the whole of the Bible. He wants our best. He wants to mature us. He wants to grow us. He wants to mature our faith, not to test it so that we might fail. He wants to grow and mature our faith so that we would grow in faith in him. God always gives us God always gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. And that's so important to remember, especially when we face suffering. Because to be a Christian is not going to be, if I try really hard, then God owes me. If I pray a lot, then my account of approval will accrue brownie points. That's not how it works. Friends, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel, that we are children of God. And how, how does someone become a child? How does someone become a child? Let's just focus on verse 13 to close. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more will the Heavenly Father give to him the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Notice who Jesus is speaking to. He's not speaking to the crowd. He's not speaking just to people that have just rocked up. He's speaking to the apostles. And he doesn't say, you are mistaken here. You understanding of what I'm saying is misplaced. Actually, you're kind of half right and half wrong. He looks them square in the eye and says, you're evil. Which is something quite incredible. Is the Lord Jesus the most loving, the most gentle man that's ever walked the earth? And he looks his apostles straight in the eye and says, you're evil. Because Jesus knows our hearts and the heart of every man and woman that will ever walk the earth. That we have a deep need, not just of moral teaching, but of a saviour. In our hearts, we are evil from head to toe, so to speak. Our hearts are corrupt, filled with evil, and you will never become a child of God unless you are willing to admit that. We are not just broken people. We are broken because of our sin. We are not just 49% right and 51% wrong. We are dead set against not doing God's will. We don't want to listen to his word. We've turned and run a million miles away. But when you admit that you, just like God's apostles, his closest friends, when you admit that you're evil, when you admit that you have a great need, you're halfway to becoming a child of God. The second thing you need to learn is this. Every human father, every divine father, will not give you a scorpion when you've asked for a fish. But once it happened, once it did happen, when you ask for a fish, you're not going to get a snake. But once it did happen, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, instead of receiving what he deserved, he received what we deserved. And his father turned his back on him. His father turned his face away. He deserved an egg. He deserved food. He deserved nature. He deserved reverence and awe. But what he got was poison. What he got was separation. It happened once. One person got the snake. One person got eternal justice so that we can have food, so that we can enjoy a relationship with our Father in heaven. Jesus Christ lost his on the cross so that we can be brought in. He was separated from the Father so that we could be united to the Father. And that's what makes us children of God. Do you know that? Can you come and pray to God knowing your status in Jesus Christ? Seeing the world with new eyes? Do you know a loving Father in heaven? If you don't, if you don't, then please speak to me and speak to the person that brought you this morning because we'd love you to know him. There's nothing more important in the whole world than that you become a child of God even this morning. Let's pray. Father, we say again that many of us will have different experiences with our own fathers. Some relationships we want to forget because they've been so painful. Some of us have dads that are good pointers to the love that you show us in Jesus. And we praise you for them. I pray for everybody here who's a Christian. As we begin a journey in this middle section of Luke, please would you teach us again and again what a disciple, what a follower of the Lord Jesus looks like. Help me to, to know more in concrete terms 
what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like, that by the power of your spirit, I might change and become more like Jesus. And for those of us that currently aren't Christians this morning, I pray very much that as we gather around the table, you would show us again the love of Jesus, what we're missing out on. If we've got questions, please, Father, would you answer them? But we thank you that you've reminded us again of your character, of your purposes, and of the fact that because of Jesus, we can call you our Father as well as our God. Amen.